1: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
0: This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded; it always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim-survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim-survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners. So please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hi, fam, and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. Before we get stuck into today's episode, I wanted to do all of the regular reminders at the beginning please go onto Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure that you subscribe, rate and review. It really does help people find this podcast so much and I really want to encourage you to do that as a Christmas present, maybe to me. (laughs) Outside of that on Facebook, you'll also see that we have a Survivor Support Network. Now, this is a place for people who have lived experience all over the world to connect and join with each other. We're going to be doing some events at the end of the year. They'll be online and if you are in Melbourne, Australia, then you will be able to come potentially if you're interested and join us for a brunch or a cocktail. We'll see what we decide at the end of the day. But for now, let's kick off with the amazing Jared, who is coming to us all of the way from Sydney. Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather, and today I am joined by Jared. Jared is an Australian, he's from Sydney. Uh, Jared is a Polished Man Ambassador and a Samson Peer support worker. I want to say welcome. Jared, and thank you for being with us today. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast and we were just having a little chat before we started um, about a a number of our passions and the connections and everything that we have. But before I guess we get too deep into that, do you mind telling the listeners just a little bit about who you are?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah. um, As Mad said, my name's Jared and I'm from Sydney. Um, I don't do this for a living. I'm an architect by day. Um, which I enjoy, but which is also a pretty hard job at times. But um, a good one for keeping the brain active, and at times for keeping your mind off things that that you you know you don't need to be thinking about. I'm in my early forties, no kids, no family. I think that's part of my story. You know, you know, I'm part of probably relates to part of my history, unfortunately. But um, yeah, both things which I would have liked to happen, but which been a bit harder to come by along the way. Yeah, so I live with my best mate in inner city Sydney,
0: and but you do have family around you. You were just saying you've got seven nieces and nephews, so there's a lot of family yeah. and support. We were just talking about how much we love our nieces and yeah. nephews.
2: Yeah, they're amazing. The older six, six of them. The oldest is a girl, and the youngest is a girl, and there's four boys in between. And they were pretty much born over the span of seven years, so one, one, one a year with a, with one gap in there. So <laughs> um, it's pretty amazing, and I'm. I have made a deliberate effort to be super involved in their lives, which has been good, hopefully for them, but really good for me.
0: (laughs) I love that so much. It's so sweet. And honestly, like, yeah, we were just saying how much how much you learn from those interactions and and everything as well and how much you can give to somebody especially a young person when you give them attention and love. But you are here today because you do have a story and I was do you, would you like to start the story with maybe where this began for you and then we can talk about some of the work that you've been doing since for Sampson and as an ambassador for the for Polish men.
2: Yeah, so where this begins for me. I mean, I I was younger than 10 years old. I won't go into any more detail about that, about the age. Um, Living in Western Sydney um, in a really great street, actually a really social street. Um, You know, lots of kids my age, lots of older brothers, which is one of the unfortunate parts of it. Although, to be honest, this wasn't one of my friend's older brothers. This was just another guy in the street um, who took an interest in me when I was young um, and he wasn't that old, actually. He was only 10 years older than me. And, you know, he was everything a young guy, kind of, a young boy looks up to, like he had a cool car. It, it's actually not a really cool car, but at the time I thought it was a cool car. And he had a girlfriend and, you know, he was finished high school as far as I could tell. I don't know. At the time, he had a computer, which was pretty rare when I was a kid. And so, yeah, I i guess I wanted his attention, you know, as, a, as most young kids love any older guy's attention. But unfortunately, the kind of attention he had came, you know, with a double-edged sword. I think my experience of that is that I didn't really know what to do with it because he would come looking for me um, and I would go because he would ask uh, because I wanted an older guy to like me and I wanted – that attention, but then I would have to do these things that I didn't really want to do. That kind of came with the package, and things that he, um you know, told me were my fault, and that I was a co-conspirator in, and that you know I would get in trouble if anybody found out, and so we couldn't tell anyone about it. You know, all of the normal, the normal grooming things, and then you know the the, the age old story really that that we know that you that you hear, and and that's all the. That's what it was. But it leaves you with a lot of guilt.
0: Because it's like, you know, it sounds like, and you, I'm glad that you said the word grooming because, you know, you're so young and, and suggestible at this age, but you're right. When you hit that kind of age where somebody's treating you like an adult and they're really cool and they've got this kind of bravado about them and everything, it's it's alluring to a child and you're not really sure what is happening You know, you don't like it and you know, you don't want to do it, but you're in a situation now where you've been led to believe this is the right way or this is the, what it is. And did the consequences and stuff start quite quickly or was it the gradual, was it a gradual grooming process? What was that like for you meeting him and this beginning to then it it eventuating through the grooming process?
2: Yeah, see, it's an interesting one. He... I don't. I don't remember the first time. Like I couldn't tell you what the first time was. I remember so many incidents, but I think he was just part of the life of where I lived. Like I said, he wasn't one of my friends or brothers. I want to make that really clear because if, um, you know, he he was in a family where, you know, all of the children were older. Not one where there was children my age and up. Because there were, you know, there were kids I hung around with who had older brothers. You know, I I got my first cigarette off one of those guys, but. <laughs> Um, that it wasn't, you know, that was okay compared to what he gave me. But, yeah, so I don't really know what the process was except that I knew who he was and they lived right behind us and we we knew who they were and they had this big aviary in their backyard um, that, you know, we loved because had all these cool birds in it and we used to watch that and, you know, my uncle's a scientist who worked in, in, in weed and plants, but loved birds, and my dad loved birds. So I think you know um there was some curiosity about all that for us, and we grew up out in nature, camping and in the bush, and all that stuff. So you know, and certainly, like I'd been over to the house before because his father would let us, you know, would once or twice let us into the aviary You know, so it was like there wasn't it wasn't this big. Although I do remember them having fights. They were you know one of those families where you could hear them having fights from down the street and that used to scare me and then particularly after after the abuse started I'd get really worried that they were that they were coming to get me um, and so I think I was a little bit scared of the family even though you know the family were none the wiser um, but we I slept in the back room of the house with my little brother that backed you know basically onto the yard and onto their house um, and I had you know a lot of trouble sleeping. A lot of the time, and I think that's where that came from. Um, you know, my I don't know what my parents thought, (laughs) and I know that kids have trouble sleeping all the time, so there was probably nothing for them to think, really. Um, and I don't think I could articulate. You know, I think once or twice I said I was afraid of robbers, but you know, it. Um. Yeah, it's one of those things that. So I think that's probably one of the earliest consequences is that that. The, the trouble sleeping I think it made me feel on the outer and so I sort of very much divided off into two into two worlds so there was me trying to present that everything was all right and then there was me where everything wasn't all right and where there was all this confusion um and Yeah, I I don't know. I don't remember. It's interesting. I think other kids can tell when kids are vulnerable, right?
0: Yeah, 100%.
2: And I don't remember before a certain age ever being like bullied or picked on at school. But after a certain point, not that I was ever horribly bullied. I'm not going to, like, I've got some friends who've got some horrendous stories of bullying, but I feel like there was a change where perhaps I became a little bit more sensitive and a little bit more. you know, easy to rile up and maybe that's my personality as well. Maybe I am a bit, you know, but I do feel a bit like that shifted as well and so, you know, and kids sense a weakness and then they go for it. And so I think some of my friendships in that street became a bit more fraught, a bit more, you know, um, they didn't go and I wasn't ostracised, but that feeling of being different and having a secret and having to cover something up um, and probably being anxious and not knowing about it, because you don't you can't, you can't. I think as a kid, defining anxiety is pretty difficult, yeah. especially yeah. when you're projecting that everything's okay. And I think that carried on. Sometimes I feel like I'm still unpacking that stuff, even though I've done years and years of counselling and working. Every now and then, something crops up, and I'm like, oh wow, that tapped into something. And I think the ongoing result really what I discover more and more, and thankfully you do get better and better at realising it and catching it up earlier, is that any trauma taps into the trauma. I feel like you could describe trauma a bit like a well. And once you've got this well of trauma that's started when you're really young, you can approach it in two ways. And until you deal with it, you're like capping it and pushing it down and there's this pressure that builds up. And then I've definitely dealt with it in that I've, you know, as soon as I told my parents, they had me in counselling, that was at 17. I've done, you know, a lot of work on myself in counselling with people, with friends, you know, um, a lot of reflection, which has really helped me to deal with it. And then at some point you kind of have to put the lid on the well and you don't have that pressure building up anymore. But you can't you can't always be vulnerable. You can't always have it open. And so you have to, I guess the other way I describe it is is now my trauma lives in a box that I can take down and I can open up, I can show you bits of it and I can talk about it, but then I can put it back in the box and put it on the shelf and it you know it used to be that it was this chaotic cupboard which you were trying to square shut change analogies here but and the door was always threatening to open but you you didn't want anyone to see it but you had to deal with all the time and so but sometimes something happens and the box just falls off the shelf and pops open yeah you know and I I um I had an experience last year I went to Singapore right as all the borders were opening and Singapore Airlines sort of mucked up, muck, mucked up. I thought I was in the right kind of flight, but I wasn't. And they had these special requirements for going into Singapore. And because of that, when I got there, I got arrested by the authorities and deported back to Australia, oh which my gosh. is traumatic on its own, right? Especially in an authoritarian country. And, you know, I shouldn't have been let onto the, the flight, but, you know, that's sort of aside, but I it really trapped it really really tapped into trauma and tapped into a part of my trauma because I think I'd moved away when I was 10 so and at some point before that when he would pursued me in public so it had always been at his house he would said hey come over to my house and I'd gotten a bit wise so I'd stopped hanging out in my backyard as much and I was hanging out in the front, in the street, you know, away from where he was, away from where he could say, hey, come over. Because if he asked, I would go. That's the thing about it that I think that's one of the things about the guilt, right? If he asked, I would go, even though I didn't want to. Yeah. <laughs> he he came out into the street. And I feel like this was the last time, to be honest, because he tried to he tried to on in the long grass at the end of the street where there was a nursing home looking down and my friends were over there and I was like, I was not having a bar of that, you know. In part, he was his own undoing because he told me I'd get in trouble, and I was a good kid, so there was no way that I was going to do anything where anybody would see anything that I could get in trouble for. But if I swing back around, I think I'd never really had that sense of powerlessness until this experience, yeah, at, at forty of being detained, where you know I realized i were going to take my phone off me, and I managed to squeeze out a text message to my. To my parents and a few people, and and make a couple of calls and set up so that people knew what was going on. And then I didn't have my phone, and I didn't have my bag, and I didn't have my passport. I didn't have anything, and I was meeting a friend there. And I did actually manage to get home to Australia a couple of days, get get some things in order, and get back. But um, it was a horrible trip because I spent the whole time scared. <laughs> and what I realised was that it had tapped into a part of my trauma that I hadn't really had to tap into, and that was like real powerlessness because in some senses, you know, I have had a pretty privileged life. I've got great parents. I've got great extended family, very secure home. Um, I'm, a, I'm a white guy in Australia where, you know, things get handed to you on a platter in a way that doesn't to other people. You know, I, I appeared to people like things were pretty good. And so I hadn't really been confronted with that with that loss of power with that loss of ability to do anything, yeah, which was obviously a component of what happened when I was younger and I dealt with so many other things and to realize that there was this uh, this thing that hadn't i'd you know and it yeah, and how much that tapped into that was you know um in some senses i guess in, really interesting to me and really fascinating but also really traumatic and 100%. so it's that it's that well and even now still when something comes up that's sad or, or upsetting, I'll start out talking about the thing, you know, with whoever I'm sort of debriefing with or if I speak to my psychologist, which, you know, thankfully I don't have to do very often anymore, but um, I end up talking about my childhood trauma and, you know, I probably should actually talk to a few people about this, but... From my sense is that for a lot of us, that's the same, that the trauma all taps back in. And so you get this little, you know, small t trauma, which everyone faces everyday traumas. Like, you know, you lose a job, you have a breakup, you have a fight with someone. You know, um, you could call it trauma, you could just call it life, right? Like, you know, or slightly bigger ones, like being arrested in the Singapore airport. If they're big enough, they tap back into that and all of those emotions come out. And so it's not a constant fight anymore but it can still be a real up and down fight against those feelings, guilt, inadequacy, shame, all of them, like the, the trio.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it's just this like incredibly suffering trio. Like the moment you've got all three, you're, you know, it's an uphill battle, but yeah. you're right. All roads kind of lead back that way. And it's the ripple effects on the pond of what one trauma can do or multiple traumas in a certain time frame can do as in your case. And this is something that I've been discussing extensively with a number of different survivors as well. And a lot of people specifically are really trying to unpack things like their religious trauma. You know, you've been told your entire life to feel shame about this and to feel um, hatred for yourself about things like potentially um, your sexuality or uh, whether or not it was your fault that you were sexually assaulted or, you know, shamed into saying you can't say sex. Therefore, you can't talk about your assault and having to deal with that. And a lot of people have spoken at length about their inner child. And I don't know, I thought it was a bit of hooey to start with. When someone's like, you're inner child. I just, just like, oh, like I didn't, the term didn't resonate with me.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And then when I started to have these experiences, and it is so powerful when you actually think about yourself at the age that you were and actually have empathy for yourself and try and work on what that person at that time, that child was feeling and thinking and giving that person empathy. When I had framed it in my mind like that, that's when it became incredibly powerful.
2: Yeah, Uh, look, I agree. I remember when my psychologist first started talking about the inner child or doing the thing where you sit in one seat and talk to yourself and then sit in the other seat. I don't know if you've done that. My gosh, I hated it, but it also works. And I think that empathy for the inner child is... You know, it doesn't resonate with me a heap but i have had to learn at one stage it it did like i got it and it was helpful and then probably as i've done that work i've kind of put it down again it's not something i need to continually pick up but um as my nie- nieces and nephews are around the age where what happened to me happened i just the thought of something happening to them is just you know so devastating <laughs> like it it's a really hard thing to to think about and you know that i think they're safe and obviously my brother and sister are very aware <laughs> because you know they're aware of my situation so they they know what to look for i think and and how to, and people are just much more aware i think that's one of the difficult things you know i no one talked about it when i was a kid you never saw anything about it in the news it was you know it was under the carpet I don't know. I'm not my parents, and I I've got to be careful not to speak for them. Or they you know, they've got their own story that that arises out of this and their own trauma that comes out of my trauma. But I don't know that they necessarily would have really had the clues or the the knowledge to think about that even happening. Yeah, you know, it, because it it wasn't something that that was talked about. And I remember the change. I remember when I was thirteen or fourteen, I saw something on the news, and I was like. It's actually that's when I started to connect the dots, Um, and why I think I'm so passionate about having the conversation. Because I I was like, there's something about this that resonates, these stories in the news, and I wanted to see them. And then I realised that that's because I, that was me, and that was how I realised I think that I'd been like abused and not a co-conspirator in the act. I was like. That was when it clicked for me that that I didn't have a choice. You know, I mean, obviously I had some choice as a child, but, you know, not a choice I was going to make easily. Like I said, I think I'm the one that ended it, but that was under pressure as well. That was a, that because there was a bigger fear.
0: Yeah.
2: Outweighing it. And I'm thankful for that, that I had that bigger fear. Yeah, realising that and then over the next few years just processing that myself and and coming to terms with it Yeah, you know, and that's as I was growing into my teen years and all the, you know, tumultuous things that that come with that, you know, and that was all going on underneath. Yeah. Still no one knew about it, but I was starting to process and starting to put bits together. And this is where I'm incredibly grateful because I was in a situation where I had an amazingly stable home life, you know, and my parents are fantastic and always have been. I mean, they haven't stuffed me up any more than anyone else else's parents have anyway. You know, um, I was close to them, although I think one of the things it did was put a barrier between me and my parents that um, they could probably sense was there, but also maybe not. And I knew it was there, but maybe not. And it was because they didn't know what had gone on. I couldn't tell them. So there is that chasm that this experience puts between you and everyone in your life. But I'm really grateful that it started to be on the news. You know, sometimes now I hate that it's on the news because I'm like, it's triggers everywhere. All day, every day, there's triggers for this kind of thing. But yeah. I'm really grateful that it was on the news that time because I saw it and understood it and and started to put my picture together. And then when so when I was, I think when I was 16 or 17, I got, like I went, you know, to my first party where there was I had some older friends, so they bought the grog and there was a group of us that used to hang out and we were very, very close. It was me and my best mate, his older brother, his good mate, and his younger sister who was my age. And she went to a girls' school, so she blew off her steam with us on the weekend. Yeah, the five of us were really, really, you know, probably a little bit too tight at times. You know, when you get groups of people like that, we cause some angst for the people around us. <laughs> um, and people you know, I think people felt left out as well, to be honest. We went to this party and I just... You know I didn't understand grog really my my parents drank but never I've done you know I've never seen my parents drink too much and it was the first time I really got drunk. I remember the cops turning up to this party and me trying to be like trying to tell them everything was okay. <laughs> Obviously I was just off my face. But um but that's where it all came out because you know I was a I was a sad drunk. So in the end I got really upset and I started running in front of cars. And thankfully it was like a quiet street. It wasn't a busy road. So cars could see, you know, like it, and I only have vague memories of this, but I remember doing it with, with some intent, you know, and my friends having to sort of run around after me and they didn't like, this would have been a complete shock to them. Right. Because as far as they were aware, I was happy. And I just remember ending up in the gutter with like my best mate, just holding me and just like crying and, you know, just getting it all out and telling him what happened. You know, and he's probably having his first experience of being drunk as well. So I can't imagine, you know, um, what it would have been like for him. And obviously we haven't revisited that night too many times. But the flip side to that is that, you know, we had the same family friends and he was like, well, you've got to tell your mum and dad or you've got to tell these people. And so I went and told them and they said, well, you've got to tell your mum and dad um, and we can come with you if you want. Um, And so... You know, I immediately had support in place, yeah, um, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And as soon as my parents found out, they were reading, they were researching, um, and I think in the early years they were like a step ahead of me every way. Whenever I was concerned about something and spoke to them about it, I had some kind of revelation that or some kind of distress. They were like, "Yes, we we're expecting this," <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, right." So that was pretty amazing. Um, and they got, you know, they got me into counselling, and I had a really great counsellor. And then from the age of 21, uh, another counselor, another s- psychologist, who I she's who I still speak to and she, if I need to. She's amazing. So it's a, you know, that's a 20-year relationship we've had now. She kept me alive in my 20s. It was as simple as that. I think another suicide attempt, like a, a serious one when I was 19, um, struggling with a girlfriend. I'd done the wrong thing and felt a huge amount of guilt for it, um, and I... Told her about it. She was very upset, obviously. And then I'd sort of said to her, Oh, you go on, I'll I'll catch up with you. And then um just, you know, I, I had a actually, a, no, I made I don't I, I knew somebody else who'd overdosed, hadn't died, but that was kind of the obvious way. And I'd had an allergic reaction to something and so happened to have these really strong drugs around. And so just took those. But um something kind of clicked when I realized that things. Were getting serious like when I could see the effects that were having on my body and I called that same mate who i had been in the gutter with at that party you know this is three or four years after that and probably three and he came over and um you know took me to hospital and sort of sorted me out and I I made a decision at that point um that I wouldn't do that again
1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: And I never have, which I don't really know where that came from because the temptation's been there. And, you know, the idea of wanting everything to just stop has definitely been there. But I think that experience, coupled with my psychologist who just kept me hanging on, was what kept me going. And, you know, architecture is an incredibly difficult degree and I progressively did better and better throughout the degree. Like I'm probably not naturally talented, but it was what I'd chosen and I just stuck at it. Then in my final year, I couldn't handle the pressure anymore. I just collapsed under the weight of it. I'd gone, you know, at 22 or 23, quietly um, off by myself again, I don't know why, independently, (laughs) without telling anyone to the cops and started the conversation, you know, um, with the police about pursuing charges and making a statement. And so that was going on for years with no one knowing about it, just my counsellor. My parents didn't know, you know, until... And it took the cops five years to get it get them to get it together. It was a historic case. It it um it always got shunted to the side when there was something more urgent for them to be dealing with. And that's not that's not um me having a go at the police because the police I dealt with were amazing. Uh, there was one particular detective who I gave all my statements to, and he was just fantastic. And I had his phone number like I could call him like he was just you know in a professional capacity. But still, he was great. I wanted to ask about the case. If I wanted to talk about something, hit like I had his line um, and had his ear, and that was that was great. My, I'm very. A lot of people have really horrible experiences. I realize, and I I didn't have a really good experience of of the police and reporting and stuff like that. Um, as difficult as it was, again, it was all done in secret. That that shame, that shame and the guilt persisted. You know, I wouldn't tell work what I was doing. I wouldn't take it. A, a, a personal leave day, I'd call in sick, you know, because I was working in architecture and studying still. Yeah. And so my I I passed my thesis for uni with 51%. And I think the only reason I got through, I, I presented two days before Christmas and, you know, I think that they just all knew me and they knew I could do it. And I and they knew that, that this was some kind of anomaly. And i you know, I'd taken my first ever special consideration in my final year. You know, and they they kind of just let me through. <laughs> like, like I I really think they let me pass. I don't think I actually passed that final, that final work. And I, you know, I'm grateful for that as well. To be honest, I'm grateful that at times along the way, there's been things that have happened that have just eased the load. And I don't think you know, no one, none of the no none of them, aside from me, having a special consideration. No one knew what was going on. They knew enough to, to kind of know where to let things slide a little. Yeah, which is. Which is good. I never, I wasn't dealing emotionally with what was going on in my 20s or in my early 20s. I, every time I saw my psychologist, and you know, at times it was weekly, fortnightly, you know, like it, it was always about life. It wasn't about what happened. It was always uni's hard or this girlfriend's broken up with me or I'm not in control of this aspect of my life. Um, or I've broken up with this girlfriend or whatever it was, you know, or these friends are this. These friendship relationships are bothering me, whatever it was. It wasn't until I got to court. So I went, we got this to court, and it was difficult to get there. Um, you have to have the right kind of evidence, the right timing. You know, you have to nail down so many things to get to court. It's very difficult to get a historic child abuse case into the courtroom. And we got there and, you know, the week of the trial, it was a it was only a week long trial, and it was, you know, me against him, basically. And the, re- the result was a hung jury, so which is better than most people get. Most people get nothing. Yeah. Some people get found guilty. So I was actually grateful for a hung jury. And the experience of going to court was an interesting one because there was like a transfer of power from him to me through that experience, I think. And um, I remember, sorry, I'm just talking here. So interject with any questions or anything that you want to kind of ask or like direct because i can no, just I'm go.
0: <laughs> yeah i'm letting you i'm let just letting you go um as your yeah. co- like stream of consciousness goes i've got i've listed a few things but i'm just going to let you go because i think yeah. where your mind's going is really interesting as well and how you're describing things but i do definitely have questions but i will i will yeah. ask
2: <laughs> yeah cool circle back when you need to <laughs> um yeah that experience of going to court for me was what unlocked unlocked the emotional side of things and my psychology my psychologist said it afterwards she said some people, they don't need the legal side, and some people do. And I think I've I care about justice and I care about fairness. And it seems to me that I couldn't start really to deal with it emotionally until I dealt with the legal system. Yeah, but I, I just remember you know, we were going to court and it was in Parramatta because that was where I was living at the time when what happened. And that's you know, that was the police station I went to to report. I drove across Sydney by myself from the Shire you know, man, it was a crazy, actually, the day I went to make the first report to police and it wasn't even a statement, it was just a report It, you know, I had this little um, sports car, 70s, sport, actually it's a picture of it behind me there. Oh, my, back. Brother, my brother drew for my 30th birthday, but um, I like was obviously driving like I did, like, like I drove a sports car. <laughs> um, I got a lot of my anger, I think out on the road, a lot of my aggression out on the road. And I, but I mean I was I also wasn't a complete dickhead, but I think I cut somebody off who was a complete dickhead. And he like, so this is on the way to the police station. I had this guy get out of a car and like try and attack me. And I I there's still a dent in the back of that car. I think it was um it's been pulled out since I don't own the car anymore. But for years there was a dent where a guy punched my car on the way to me make the to on the way to me making the first report to the police in secret. It was a very surreal day to go, to go through that. Like, and that was like five minutes before I arrived at the police station. And I had to actually, like, pull out of a parking lane and, like, drive into traffic to get away from him or or, or I think he would have, like, pulled me out of the car. Yeah. And I, I, don't, I, still, I still don't actually know. I assume that I cut him off, but I don't, I definitely didn't do it deliberately. So I don't quite know what happened. But he just, day. like, lost it. But he lost. And so it was a very surreal, like, the whole experience was very surreal. And then five years later, we end up in in court over there, and I like drove that road every day and remembered that incident every day. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I remember at the start of the week there was you'd walk out of the lift and there's two courtrooms, and each of the courtrooms had a couple of little conference rooms outside, and we were sort of sitting gathered ne- next to lift. and then we saw him and his legal team come out, and straight away I was like, "Whoa, okay, it can't be here," and like scurried away into our little conference room, and um, you know, we had the week that went over and then, you know, the results came down, Hungary, and then we were allowed to leave the courtroom first, you know, and so we did. We got what passed and his wife. He was only, he'd only, I think he got arrested on the way home from his honeymoon. Whoa. Um, yeah. And his wife stood up and told me to go to hell and just like really, yeah, like as we were walking out of the courtroom on the last day and my auntie, who was amazing? She was there the whole time. Like, was she's actually a prison guard, and she just turned around and stood over her and like <laughs> put her in a place.
0: Yeah, shut up! Um, like, what the hell?
2: Yeah, but and I just kept walking. But then we sat outside and we sort of went back down to the other courtroom and so then they left and they were standing around outside our courtroom. And I just sat on this bench and I remember just looking at him and staring at him. Mm-hmm. And my mum was like, "Oh, do you want to? Do you want to go off? You know, like they're there. Do you want to go?" On? And I was like, "I'm done." I'm not, um, and I, st- I, I stared at them so much until they went and hid in their little room, and I was like, that's, that was that transfer of power moment, um, you know, and it was really obvious he was guilty. He tried to blame anyone. You know, my parents had left me for a few weeks and gone overseas, and he tried to blame my dad's coworker who they left me with, whose daughter was my age. You know, or maybe it was him, and you're confused. I'm like, I'm not confused between someone between a teenager and my, someone my dad's age. Like, yeah, um, or maybe it was the guy's dad or older brother. You know, and I was like, I I know who I'm talking about, and uh, like, what kind of person tries to blame their father or their brother unless there's re- unless they're really guilty. I, like it, yeah, it was, you know, it's a
0: horrible tr- like attempted a defense. Yeah. What happened after the hung jury? Like what's the process from a no decision? Is it an, is it another trial?
2: Uh it's another trial if I want to but you know it's a lot it's a lot to put my myself through it's a lot to put my mother through. There have been more trials though which I can talk about but maybe like yeah I think so after that that's when I cried about what happened for the first time. So I I told I'd alluded to what happened to my psychologist like she knew I'd been sexually abused and in preparation for court I'd gone through the the physical detail of what actually happened because I knew I would have to tell in court but it was like going it wasn't like talking to my counselor about it she stood there like a court person and I practiced talking about it with her and I'd cried my eyes out in counseling heaps of time but it was always about what was going on in life or what I was feeling and I just remember the first time afterwards being on the floor curled up in like this tiny little ball in the fetal position, just broken. It was also because of the sense of relief at having handed over that shame and that guilt, I think. And then I could deal with the emotions. And so I got, I think in the, in the years between 27 and 30, I got through so much more personal healing than I'd done it all in in the years preceding and it was because un- i done I'd unlocked it and for me that was a legal process and so I, I I think you know people shy away from it and they're scared of it and I with good reason like it was a, it was it was not a good experience for me even though it was a good experience compared to what other people have yeah um but it was the best thing I could have done because obviously for me it was what I needed it was that key I needed to unlock dealing with the emotional side of it.
0: And I mean, it makes complete sense. And I like the way that you've characterized that because it is like, you know, like you spoke before about how much power and control he held over you and how much that loss of power has come with you for a very long time throughout your life as a part of the trauma you have to deal with. And then being able to kind of take back that control and be the person now that's calling the shots almost. It's an incredibly powerful experience to be able to say you're not you can't hurt me anymore, and I'm the one calling
2: the shots now. Yeah, it, it is. Though sometimes I think I forget that I'm not unbreakable. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I do still fail to take care of myself. I think at times, like to realize that I'm triggered, or even if I realize that I'm triggered, to actually take that seriously and to you know and to think, okay. These are emotions you need to deal with. This is like something you need to face or you need to you talk about. Yeah, about five years after that court case, um, his wife tracked me down, um, got my phone number. Probably, you know, the person who gave it out probably shouldn't have given it out, but that's a different that's a different story. She knew she knew where my dad worked and and sort of found my number through that. And I don't think I don't think the receptionist knew what she was doing. She just texted out of the blue one night. And it was weird because I was actually, I'd just moved in from the Shire into Surrey Hills. Now for me, that was my big move. Like a lot of people move overseas, they go to London or America or wherever you go. The biggest I could manage, the furthest I could be from my family, um, was to move in, you know, 40 minutes away. Cause I knew I still needed them, them close. Um I think I knew I was still unpacking things in my life that I would need to be around them for. And so that's one thing I've never done and probably never will. I probably got to the point now where at 41, I'm not interested in starting my life again overseas or going for a couple of years. I'm I'm established enough. I don't need to. I can just travel for fun. Yeah. But, you know, th- there's a loss in that as well. I think um, so much of my 20s I spent dealing with stuff. And then even when things were heaps better, when I felt safe enough to, like, move, you know, I, I hadn't been living with my parents since I was 22, but, they were five minutes drive away. Um, and, and, you know, for that big move to be Surrey Hills, not London, there's a little bit of grief in that. I'm, you know, I'm okay with it now, but there's some loss, you know, there's some experiences in life that I definitely haven't had because of what happened. And because I've, you know, I couldn't be too far away from support. I couldn't just leave the country because I wasn't, I didn't function well enough on my own. You know, and now that I could do it, I don't have the desire anymore. Yeah, but um, yeah. So she contacted me. I just moved into the Surrey Hills, and Dab was coming in. Just was going to go and see, I don't know, some dumb superhero movie, but um, and she texted and said, "Oh hi, I'm really sorry for how I treated you in court, and I've left him because um, we have a we had a child together." And I think he started abusing her.
0: Oh, my gosh.
2: And can you, like, can you come and give evidence at a custody hearing? And I got this text and was like, oh, you know, and two minutes later my dad, like, showed up. And I, t- I showed it to him, but then the movie started. So we watched the movie and then it was 9.30. So he left and I walked home. <laughs> and I, I remember seeing him, like, looking at him going down the train tunnel and thinking that shouldn't be happening, and and like I'm not putting this on him either, like you know. Uh, but I was thinking I I shouldn't be letting him go. I need him right now. But I I've, I've been like we'd walked out and we'd almost both forgotten about it. I was like, see you, dad. He's like, see. Ya. I was like, I was you know, and you know I I don't know what he was thinking either. But it was just like we kind of had. It was such a massive thing, but it happened at this really weird kind of time that just kind of interrupted my life and I'd sort of pushed it aside. But then like I called a friend and just was a like total mess the whole way walking home. Yeah. Because, you know, and it like it, it really just intruded back into my life again, you know, in a, in a, in a big way, because then I had five months of prep like of waiting for this, this court case to happen with, um, with the custody hearing. Um, And, you know, she was not a well woman either. And she broke rules. She would call me when the police had told her not to, She, you know, she'd try and have conversations. Me being me would, would try and like hear her out and like, look, you know, sympathize with her, but then also say, we can't be talking about this thing. We can't be talking about that thing, like trying to keep, keep these lines clear where, yeah, it was, it wasn't very good.
0: trying to enforce some kind of boundaries. And it kind of sounds like, you know, after the hung jury, if you've made a decision that for now you're okay with that and you've done your part, you're trying to move on, it's almost like are you going to not go to a custody hearing to protect another child? No, but it gives – it's something that you've now got to do and relive yourself as well. And it's that must have been really difficult for you because the pressure of that – like. Maybe is this what you like? I don't know if this is how you feel, but I feel like it would be what I feel. If I don't go, I'm putting a child in danger. Like, what was the feeling for you out of obligation to do that?
2: No, there was no way I wasn't doing it. Yeah. There, for, there wasn't. I don't think that I didn't think there was any time that I wasn't doing it. Yeah. The whole time I wished I wasn't doing it. There's there's just no way, and I'd be back again in a heartbeat if I had to, and I did. I did. There was another one a few years later. I had to do it again. You know, because that was ongoing. There was ongoing, and I, since the second one, I there hasn't been anything more. And the second one was four or five years ago. Now, I think she she sort of made contact to tell me what the results were, and I can't quite remember what the results are because I've chosen, like I deleted that text, and I've I've chosen to not think about it. Like I I've done my bit, yeah, you know, and I don't need to keep hearing about this girl or this woman or what's going on for them. Like, you know, and if for some legal reason they need my assistance again, I would do that, you know. But um, I, I'm reasonably certain that the way it went, he ended up still having access to the child, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah.
0: Um, but it's yeah. like you can't dwell on that either. You've done or yeah. you can and it's kind of difficult as well. Like you're not going to have this woman over for dinner. You're not going to like chit chat. Um, but you know, you're not there for her either, which must be quite a difficult thing. I think maybe for her as well, but we don't want to put words in someone's mouth. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like, you know, this offender, this dude has a propensity for young children, um, and has for a very long time. And I read some, um, information recently that was talking about sexuality and things like that and and how it's really solidified between like the ages of 16 and 19. And I think that was quite shocking for a lot of people when that data came out because you kind of think you've got this really long-term perception that a pedophile or somebody with a propensity for attractions to children of any any aged child, prepubescent, post would be this like old creepy dude you know, like they're portrayed in the movies kind of thing. But to think that an offender can be quite young to begin with, you know, the data is suggesting that, you know, they've solidified that as something that they're interested in from a very young age. And if he's acted on that from a very young age as well, like it just it's quite terrifying how many people he may have left in his wake as well.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know how much I can say about him without I know maybe you can figure out the ramifications if I say this, but um, <laughs> like I know because, like I said, the wife gave me way too much. Like she called way too much, and I I was too patient. You know, I, I was too nice. I tried to I tried to carry her burden, which I shouldn't have done. I think part of the reason I did it was because I got so much more information about him, yeah, from her, and it was stuff I wanted to know. Like, I know that what he does for a living, he's a private detective. Um, oh Jesus. Yeah, and so when she went to the police, she was going to police who knew him. Like, and again, I'm not suggesting there's any impropriety on, the, impropriety on the police's part here, but she had to go and report it to people who worked with him. You know, he wasn't a police detective, but, and he had been caught, caught out outside of school. Again, I know this only through her telling me about it, but like he was able to pass it off as, as work but actually he wasn't supposed to be working on that case on that day. Like, and so I think what you're talking about, that certification, that, you know, hopefully, hopefully he hasn't had any actual access to children. Yeah. But aside from his daughter, which is horrendous, but who knows? Like that's kind of scary knowing that information. But I, I just hate so much all the defamation stuff that you have to be wary of as well. That, yeah, you know you can't inadvertently identify a perpetrator because then they can sue you, like Jeffrey Rush, right? So that, yes, like completely different story. But that poor woman who, who didn't go, she didn't actually go out of her way to be caught up in that. And then the bloody Daily Telegraph, you know, they wanted a Me Too story and they, they outed her, and then she ended up getting sued for defamation. And well, the paper did, and she got caught up. I don't know. I was I was at a talk about it the other day. Yeah, it just, it's just. So horrible.
0: It's actually uh, funny you mentioned that. I'll grab this up quickly, sorry. I went just through meeting another victim survivor um, whose, whose case has just been passed down as not guilty, even though there was a, a number of evidence. We got to meet um, Clementine Ford, uh, who's a, a Melbourne-based feminist and activist, and she invited us to his book launch of, this book
2: called how many more women I was there
0: were you at this yeah in the Sydney one
2: yeah with my friend Shannon <laughs> Malloy Shannon invited me
0: so we've like this is like I feel like going to become our bible of any yeah. victim survivor I to have I reference read it yet, to. But
2: I'm going to
0: but it is it's just so and the way that they speak about everything and the way that you know even doing this podcast and how difficult it is to navigate different states different countries different laws and Australia has some of the harshest defamation laws and, you know, we saw it with that Let Us Speak campaign that was started by Nina Fennell, you know, in Victoria, you know, my my offender, the, the man who offended against me, was found guilty and sentenced to prison time. But if I was to inadvertently in some ways pre the Let Us Speak campaign identify him, I would go to potentially have prison time because I didn't get a court order to say his name or to identify him. Yeah. And there is that constant thing that we have to be wary of, which is frustrating because, I don't know, I feel like it's a public health issue.
2: Yeah. Like this is
0: somebody who has, you know, probably, well, there's a hung jury. He's definitely not innocent. Um, yeah. There's a s- consistent theme kind of here. and. Yeah. To have to be wary of that consistently and to try and be an advocate in this space and have to not speak freely is just so frustrating
2: I, I don't like uh, I was so outraged by that talk mm. like just at how I don't know how the system can change and and to an, to a degree, I agree with the presumption of innocence like. I I I'm not saying like I want to throw out the whole you know judicial system, but I don't know with these kinds of cases. Like I just remember in my case how hard the the judge pushed reasonable doubt, and I was like, well, obviously there's reasonable doubt. I I understand how two people probably couldn't convict. You know I know the number because the the foreman was quite distressed and she said it when she shouldn't have. Um, you know. But, you know, and like the trauma, the trauma the jury has to go through as well. Like I watched the faces and there were people my age, you know, in that like, not that I feel bad, but I felt for them hearing what they had to hear. Yeah. like this trauma doesn't like it has such ripple effects, but hearing the, you know, the reasonable doubt thing hammered through so hard. Like I get that's how it works, but it. It just means it's, it actually means it's stacked against the victim.
0: Just jumping in here to conclude part one of this episode with Jared. We'll be back next week with the final and part two of this discussion. I want to say thank you as well to Jared for coming on, sharing this so far and being so wonderful and candid. I did share with him after editing that I do truly believe that this conversation will save lives. It's so wonderful seeing men specifically in this area as well being so vulnerable with their stories and being able to share in such an open and authentic way. I just know that it's going to connect with so many people listening right now. Thank you so much for listening to Reclaim Me. Always remember that we see you, we hear you, we believe you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...